you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open it to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And uh, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 737. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 21 this morning. And the title of this sermon is Faithfulness in the University of Babylon. So today we begin a 12-week series through the book of Daniel that's going to take us all the way from here to Easter, Um, 12 chapters of Daniel over 12 weeks. Uh, Once again, uh, I just want to point out, I know I'm a broken record here, but I just want to point out how amazing God's Word is. Uh, The events in this book that we're about to study date back all the way to 605 BC, and yet they have direct application to our day even more to our current culture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say this. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you realize this morning that All scripture refers even to an Old Testament book like Daniel. Daniel is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that we all might be complete and equipped for every good work. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us over the next 12 weeks, that We'll know the scriptures and we'll allow the scriptures to work in us and then through us. And I want to challenge each of you to come to the text each week asking God what it is that he wants to do in your hearts. Come with open hands, ready to receive what God wants to do. Maybe to teach you. Maybe to reprove or correct you. Maybe to train you in righteousness. Everyone up for that? That's my prayer. That's my hope for us. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into a little bit of background and overview um, considerations for the book as a whole before diving in and meditating on chapter one. So Daniel the book, and this should be easy for us to remember, um, Daniel the book was written most likely by Daniel. Um, Throughout the book, especially in later chapters, we'll see Daniel speaking often in the first person, saying, I, Daniel, so on and so forth. Uh, The book covers the time period between, as I said, 605 BC and about 537. So it spans about 70 years of Daniel's life. Uh, Most importantly, and we're going to see this immediately in chapter 1, Uh, This book is set during the time period of Israel's exile into Babylon. Uh, And that's one of the main themes that we're going to see throughout the entire book. Uh, This question of what does it look like as um, people of God to live somewhere that's not our home? And I don't mean like vacation. Uh, I, I mean to live as spiritual exiles somewhere that 
doesn't have the same worldview or values as us. So what does it look like as people of God to live somewhere that's not our home? Uh, Daniel is a book that's written to the people of God in a world that's completely opposed to them. But it's also a manual of faithfulness. Uh, One commentator said that the main two calls that are given over and over in this book are these. Don't give up and stand firm. Faithfulness in Babylon. And we'll see that message immediately in chapter 1. Man, (laughs) we need, uh, I need to hear that message um, on January 10th, 2020. Don't give up. And stand firm. Don't give up and stand firm. Uh, The actual structure of this book is pretty complex and pretty amazing. I hope that uh, many, if not all of you, were able to watch the Gospel Project or or the Bible Project video on Daniel, where they um, explain how the different chapters kind of mirror each other and why. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to watch that, I printed out the, the Bible Project poster. Uh, out on the table there that kind of gives you an overview of the whole book. So you can pick that up on the way out. Um, But kind of zoomed out a bit and a bit more simplistic in structure is this. Uh, Chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Daniel deal with Daniel the prophet and his life in the court of the Babylonian kings. Chapters 7 through 12, the back half of the book, deal with Daniel's prophecies. In other words... Chapters 1 through 6 are Daniel the man, and chapters 7 through 12 are Daniel's message. Um, Again, that's overly simplistic, and the actual structure is a lot more complex, but I'm just going to leave it there for now. Um, One more important truth before we dive in. In many respects, the book of Daniel is a mystery, especially the back half of the book, as, as we'll see some things that aren't necessarily clear in the details. But I want to encourage us this morning, don't be discouraged by that. Uh, Even Daniel didn't completely understand everything in detail. Uh, If we look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, he says this. He says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Uh, Our goal in this series will be to focus on the big picture, uh, which is what always gave Daniel himself hope, as we're going to see. And as we understand the big picture, it'll help us to understand some of the small details as well. So with that said, let's dive in to Daniel chapter 1. I was supposed to have had Aaron come read this, and I totally forgot and stepped in. Um, So we're going to just read through Daniel chapter 1 real quick. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, 
youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, first and foremost, uh, in this chapter that we just read, Daniel wants us to see that God is in complete control, even in the midst of his people's suffering. So, point one, God's sovereignty in suffering. Now look with me again at the first two verses. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So at this point, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, we know that Daniel is about 13 to 16 years old. And Nebuchadnezzar, think Israel's enemy, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Drew, I, I think you misread that, right? Nothing ever bad happens to God's people, right? Just follow God and you'll be healthy and wealthy and safe, right? God never promises that. So 
Is God losing the battle here? His people are being taken captive. Is God too weak to stop that? Not at all. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Do you see that? The Lord gave. The Lord gave. Who's really in control here? The Lord. Uh, This phrase is central to chapter 1 and meant to be an intro to the entire book. Verse 2, the Lord gave the king of Judah into his hand. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, and as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. From the beginning, Daniel doesn't want us to question who's really in control here. They might be in exile, but God is still on the throne. But why would God do this? Why would he send his people into exile? Well, very simply, because of his promises and because of his plan. First, we've got to realize that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. In Leviticus chapter 26, God made a covenant with his people that included blessings for obedience and curses for rebellion. Part of those curses was exile. Uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 33 and then 39. God says, if you rebel, he says, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. And in verse 39, he says, And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God again promised that if Israel went astray, that he'd send them into exile. He was patient with them, though, for over a thousand years, actually. But even more than just a fulfillment of God's general covenant that we see there in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, this exile that Daniel and his friends are in, it fulfilled a specific promise given by the prophet Isaiah. In 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah, the king of Israel, shows off all of the treasury to the king of Babylon. And in return... This is what Isaiah says to King Hezekiah. 2 Kings 20, verse 18. He says, And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do you see that? Israel isn't in exile because God's word has failed. They're there precisely because God's word is being fulfilled. So Nebuchadnezzar really did want to take over Jerusalem. God's people really did sin and rebel against him. 
There's human responsibility in that. Yet, God is still sovereign. Daniel wants you to know that before this book ever starts. Now, look again at the end of verse 2. It says that Nebuchadnezzar brought them where? Into the land of Shinar. If you've been reading through Genesis here at the beginning of the year in your Bible reading programs, uh, you, you might, this might sound familiar to you. Where is Shinar? There once was a famous tower built there. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. First mention of Shinar. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So Shinar, throughout Scripture, represents what Augustine would later label the city of man, which is in opposition to what Augustine would call the city of God. So from the beginning of this book, Daniel wants us to know two truths. Think of these as kind of thesis statements. Number one, God is sovereign even in the midst of trial. And two, this book isn't merely about a struggle between the nation-state of Judah and the nation-state of Babylon. It's about a battle between the city of God and the city of man. So, while these are historical events that really did happen, they're meant to teach us something spiritual that very much applies today. In 2021, we're still in this same battle between the city of God and the city of man. The truths from this book will help us to live faithfully as Christians in a world that's completely opposed to God and to his thoughts, and to his ways. In 2021, God is still sovereign over all things. That's why we can live in a place and in a home that's not ours, and yet live faithfully and with hope. So with all of that as kind of the backdrop, let's try to understand point number two. Strategies of the city of man. Strategies of the city of man. Nebuchadnezzar had already besieged the city of Jerusalem at this point. But what I want us to see here is he's not naive. He knew that the most important battle wasn't over yet. And that that was the battle for culture. For the hearts and minds and souls of his new subjects. And we get a front row seat in Daniel chapter 1 to see how the city of man seeks to brainwash those in its control. Did you catch that as we read through the text? First, they take the best and the brightest. Specifically, the young. Remember that Daniel and his friends are teenagers at this point. 
And where did they start with them? Look at verses 3 through 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom and endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And Nebuchadnezzar's plan to overthrow the people of God doesn't just involve military might, does it? There's no shots being fired here. He's going to indoctrinate them. He's going to teach them a false worldview. And it's important to know that at this point, it's going to be almost 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem is actually complete. And it's going to happen in three distinct stages. This that we're reading about here is just stage one. Taking the nobility, molding their minds, changing the way that they think. He takes them out of their culture. He takes them away from their families. And he puts them in his court. They're going to think like Babylonians. Now, I don't need to tell you that Nebuchadnezzar's strategy here has been used before. And more importantly, it's been used since this moment in the text. We're living in it. Colleges, universities, even high schools all over our country and world are actively and intentionally indoctrinating the best and the brightest day after day in how to think like Babylonians. As Christians, we must be aware of this. And this isn't to say that Christians shouldn't ever attend secular schools. That's not what I'm saying. But if you do, don't be naive. They have a program for your life. And it's often in opposition to the city of God. I want to speak to young people and college students for just a second. Do you realize that the most subversive thing that you can do in college is go and join a local church. If you want to get swept up in the current of the indoctrination program that they have for you, just keep yourself isolated. But if you want to hang on to your faith, go join a local church. That's where you're going to be encouraged in how to faithfully live in the city of God. Consider that. Let's keep going in the text. So, They're isolated from their families. They're isolated from worship. But there's more to this program. Nebuchadnezzar wants them to compromise. Look at verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. We'll discuss this a little bit more later, but two things are going on here. First, the the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank were defiled because they came from what was given to the idolatrous gods of the Babylonians. They'd be offered to these gods, and then what was left over would come back into the king's court. But there's another element here that 
He's setting themselves up as their ultimate provider and sustainer. He wants these young men to think, without Nebuchadnezzar, what in the world would we do? He's the one who's providing for us. He's our sustainer. That's right where he wants them. This is the beginning of totalitarian control. The hand that feeds you controls you. So Christians, are you looking to places other than God for provision and sustenance? So many look to the government or to politics to be fed and to be the ultimate provider. Don't be brainwashed into thinking like Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar has isolated them from family and from worship and set himself up as their provider. But there's more. Look at verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. They changed their names. Harmless, right? No. Why is this a big deal? Well, in our culture, we don't always give much thought or meaning to the naming of our kids. But in Jewish culture, they did. So what did these boys' names actually mean? Notice that all four of them either have El or Yah as part of their names. El is the general name for God. And Yah is the personal and specific name revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. Yahweh. So what do these names mean? Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. What did they change his name to? Belteshazzar. Which means, may Bel protect his life. Any guess who Bel is? One of the Babylonian gods. (laughs) This isn't harmless. How about the other three? Hananiah. It means Yahweh is gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach, which means Aku, which is another Babylonian god. Aku is exalted. Mishael means who is what God is. What did they rename him? Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. How about Azariah? His name means Yahweh is my helper. Great name. Now he's called Abednego, or the servant of Nebo. You guessed it. Nebo is another Babylonian god. Do you see how this is worldview warfare? Instead of a constant reminder of who you were as a child of God, you're called by the name of a Babylonian God. They're striking at the identity of these four boys. This is indoctrination at its finest. Whether it's communism or even Mormonism, this is how you begin to change how someone thinks of themselves. 
Next time Mormons come to your door, notice that they're no longer called by their first names. They're called elder and then last name. There's a reason for that. In Russian communism, what did they call each other? Comrade. They no longer have personal identities. Names are important. Keeping your identity in Christ firm is a spiritual life and death. So I want to ask the question, where is your identity rooted? Where is your identity rooted? In the city of God or the city of man? How we think determines how we live. Worldview matters, and it's upstream from culture. Where is your identity rooted? So, how did Daniel and his friends respond to this? Point three, the response of faithfulness in a fallen world. Verse eight is the key verse for this entire chapter. Verse eight says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Do you see that? Daniel resolves to resist worldliness and to be holy. He resolves not to defile himself. Again, this seems to be both that Daniel doesn't want the credit to go to the king for what's ahead, and that the food and drink that he's been given are ritually defiled. Daniel chose holiness. And this doesn't seem like it was a last-second decision, does it? It says, he resolved. Even that word, resolved, brings to to memory the resolutions of a guy named Jonathan Edwards. If you've never read uh, Edwards' resolutions, they're amazing. Uh, in, In the new year, we often like to make resolutions to do things like eat less, or eat better, or Work out more. Those are fine resolutions. They're fine to do. But Edward's resolutions are all related to the glory of God. And I want to just give you a sampling here. These are number one and two. It says, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time. Whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Resolve, number two, resolve to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. Amazing. He has 70 of these resolutions, all about the glory of God. And my point here is this. Christians, that you should be resolving in your hearts now whether you'll follow God no matter what the cost. Resolve now that you won't bend the knee to Babylon. Know what you believe and why. Resolve in your hearts what you will And what you won't do when temptation and trial come. This takes a lot of prayer. 
A lot of meditating on Scripture. And a lot of intentional forethought. But it's worth it. I'm no prophet, and and I don't need to be one to see that the world is closing in around us as Christians. That every single one of us will be put to these kinds of decisions. Will we choose holiness and obedience? You may be thinking, come on, Drew. This is just a small thing. Daniel just chose not to eat the food and drink the wine. Maybe it is a small thing. But remember what Jesus said. Luke 16.10. Jesus said, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. You'll notice throughout this book, Daniel and his friends get put on bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger stages. They were faithful with a little, and then faithful with a lot. That's not surprising. Now, the other half of verse 8 is also instructive for us. Notice first that, that Daniel resists, but he does so with humility. He doesn't just come out and throw a haymaker. He humbly asks the eunuch to allow him not to defile himself. He's not obnoxious, even though he's resisting. Take note of that. That we live in an antagonistic culture that's constantly opposed to our morality and our worldview. But we're not called to be jerks. You can resist. You can be holy. But you can also be humble. Let's keep reading. There's more truth here. Verses 9 through 14. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. I've already mentioned this before, but do you see that phrase again? God gave God gave Daniel favor and compassion. So how can you respond in faithfulness in a fallen world? By knowing with all of your heart that God is sovereign. He's the one who gives favor with eunuchs and with kings. He's the one who's in control of everything. And that's the second truth I want you to see here. Daniel believed this. With all his heart, he resolved not to defile himself. And he believed. Where did I get that? Well, you don't make a request like Daniel did in verse 12 unless you believe that God's going to come through. 
He trusted God to honor his holiness. He believed in God. There's not a presumptuousness here. But Daniel is confident that God will somehow, some way, honor his faithfulness. But I want to suggest to you again that Daniel and his friends, they didn't get to this position overnight. They didn't just all of a sudden decide to pursue holiness. It wasn't out of the blue. First, a number of commentators have pointed to verse 1 again. Uh, based on the dating of the third year of Jehoiakim, 605 B.C., as we said earlier. That makes Daniel, again, 13 to 16 years old. What this means is that he was born during the reign of Josiah. Why am I getting so excited about that? Well, because Josiah became king of Israel when he was 8 years old. 10 years later, when he was 18 years old, Josiah opened the temple that his grandfather Manasseh had sealed shut. Do you know what they rediscovered when they opened the temple again? The word of God that had been lost to them. Josiah opens the temple. They find the word of God and they devoted themselves to it. And a great revival broke out in Israel. Daniel and his friends were around for all of that. They grew up in a vibrant church committed to the word of God. When they came to this moment in Nebuchadnezzar's court, they were prepared. Second, they had the influence of their parents. By the meaning of their names that we walked through earlier. The meaning of their names their parents gave them. We know that their parents were committed followers of Yahweh who raised their kids in the faith. One of the most important texts in all of the Old Testament, it's known as the Shema. It says this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, shall be on your heart. And here we go, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Love God. Teach your children. Talk about God's commands. When? Well, it says, when you sit in your house. In other words, when you're hanging out. When you walk by the way. In other words, when you're traveling. When you lie down. In other words, when you're putting your kids to sleep. When you rise. In other words, in the morning when you get up. In other words, all the time. (laughs) This is our call as Christian parents. Deuteronomy 6 isn't a command given to the temple or to the professional Christians. It's given to parents. That's our philosophy of children's ministry here. 
It's what Brooke has done so well over the last two years. Yes, we want to come alongside you as parents to subsidize teaching your children the ways of the Lord. But the primary responsibility for discipling children lands on Christian parents. So parents, are you preparing your kids to resist worldliness and to pursue holiness? Resistance starts in the home and in the church. So God is sovereign. They're being indoctrinated. They resist humbly. But what happens? Point four, God is faithful. Look at verses 15 through 21. It says, At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. They trusted God, and God honored their holiness. They were in better physical shape. And there it is again in verse 17. God gave. God gave. What did he give them? Learning, skill, and all literature and wisdom. He gave Daniel understanding and all visions and dreams. We'll find out quickly how that gift comes into play the rest of the book. Then they're elevated to positions of influence. God is faithful to them. And I want to be clear here. Uh, Honoring God won't always lead to a position of influence. It it eventually lands them in a fiery furnace. And then Daniel in a lion's den. God is always faithful when we trust in him. Uh, Verse 21 is kind of an exclamation point to that truth. Who's the king of Babylon in this opening chapter? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Verse 21 tells us that Daniel's going to outlast him by a long way, all the way to King Cyrus 70 years later. We're going to see Daniel and his friends obey and honor God all the way through the book. And we'll see God be faithful over and over and over again. Here's the point. We can be faithful in Babylon Because we serve and believe in a faithful God. Finally, and I want to be crystal clear on this point. God is faithful, most significantly, in our salvation. God is faithful in our salvation. Uh, Reading a story like Daniel and even chapter 1 can easily lead us to two separate conclusions. First, Maybe you hear Daniel's story and you think, awesome, 
I'm like Daniel. Therefore, God's going to give me favor and he's going to love me. That would be to miss the point completely. Yes, God desires covenant faithfulness from us. That's absolutely true. He's even pleased and honored by our faithfulness. But our faithfulness does not earn our salvation. Maybe that's not you that I'm describing. Maybe you're sitting out there and you realize from reading this that you're not a Daniel. Maybe you're more like the multitudes that are not named in this text, who ate the king's food and took the king's names happily. The more we read this book, the more we'll realize that we're not Daniel. But here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is not that God is only faithful to those who are faithful to him. The good news is that God sent a savior to save even faithless sinners like us. He sent a better Daniel named Jesus. Our salvation rests not on us being undefiled. We're not. But it rests on Jesus being undefiled. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus endured trials and temptations just like Daniel and much, much worse. And he never sinned. He was never defiled. He came into exile on this earth from his heavenly home. And he obeyed to the end. Obeying, as Philippians tells us, to the point of death on a cross. He, Jesus, the better Daniel, was faithful. And he did that on our behalf. That's our only hope as Christians. Not that we're Daniels, though we should aspire to be, but that Jesus was. Turn from rebellion. Turn from defilement. Turn from sin. And trust in Christ today. Repent and believe in Jesus. So don't give up. Stand firm. Trust in Christ and the sovereignty of God. Let's pray.